think what's happening right now is Ryan and I for the last decade have been asking this question, what is essential? And now a lot more people are all of a sudden asking. In fact, the term's even out there, essential worker, right? But what is essential in my home? What is essential in my life? What is essential on my calendar? What is essential? And that's why I hope to illuminate with, with this film, how people ask that question, what is essential? Minimalism is not about owning nothing. It's just about breaking free from that attachment. You can turn your life around on a dime when you have the power to let go of anything in your life. Uh, we all have the opportunity though to, to restart our lives, to start over. And this film was about starting over with less. And that can be less stuff, but it can also be less distractions, fewer commitments, etc. It's about starting over. I mean, is this film for every single person? I think every single person will get something out of it. But I think who it's going to help the most is someone who's in a situation right now and they need some emotional leverage to start over. I think this film will help them do that. Hey everybody, I'm Joshua Fields Milburn. And I'm Ryan Nicodemus. And together we are The Minimalists and we are here on The Rich Roll Podcast. The Rich Roll Podcast. Hey everybody, welcome to the podcast. Good news. Joshua Fields Milburn and Ryan Nicodemus, AKA The Minimalists are here in the house for a powerful powwow on how to live better with less. Given that a verbose introduction feels a little inappropriate, it would be weird, right? Anyway, I will say that I've known both these guys for years. I love them. I have so much respect for their work, their mission of empowerment. And this conversation, which is coming up is really stellar and potentially even life altering. But first, We're brought to you today by On. I am a total gearhead. I love researching the latest technology for the sports I enjoy. And I've learned that people often overlook apparel, but what you wear isn't just clothes. It is without a doubt, technology. Technology that can make or break a performance. And I can tell you after spending two full days meeting with the apparel wizards at On Labs in Zurich, that On is innovating in this space like no other with next-gen premium fabrics and just this heightened level of sophistication and precision and testing and development and intentionality previously unheard of that puts them just miles beyond the competition. I've been rocking On's high-performance running apparel, including the long tees, the weather jackets, even the climate jacket, all super lightweight, tailor-fit, built to move, and just gorgeous to get you out and get it done in fleet foot comfort, no matter the weather. I'm super proud to be a brand partner with this impressive team from increasing product sustainability to improved energy return and impact protection, truly Swiss innovation at its finest. To get you moving, On is offering an exclusive 10% discount. To redeem, head over to on.com slash richroll and use code richroll10 at checkout. We're brought to you today by Birch. If you're serious about optimizing your sleep, listen up. I've spent countless hours researching and testing various methods to improve my nightly shut-eye, and I can confidently say that it all starts with a good foundation. And if your bed is old, if it's uncomfortable, lumpy, 
then your sleep inevitably is going to be impacted. So it's important to invest in a quality mattress, one that's insanely comfortable, that's organic, sustainably made. And that, my friends, is a birch mattress. Fairtrade and Rainforest Alliance certified with the finest quality organic natural materials like organic Fairtrade cotton. Birch mattresses are made with none of the toxic chemicals and off-gassing produced by most major brands. Kind of important not to be breathing that for a third of your life, I'd say. Plus, it's super luxurious. I've been sleeping on Birch for about five years, and I'd say it's the perfect ratio of soft to supportive, and the craftsmanship is just next level. I've got one in every room of my house. I love it. Pretty sure you will too. And right now, Birch is giving 20% off all mattresses and two free EcoRest pillows at birchliving.com slash richroll. That's 20% off and two free EcoRest pillows. Sleep better with Birch. We're brought to you today by Seed. Gut health is all the rage. There's good reason for that. I've probably devoted, I don't know, at least a dozen episodes of this podcast to the many, many crucial ways the microbiome contributes to your overall well-being or lack thereof, and to the many diet and lifestyle protocols we should all adopt to promote gut health, from fermented food to fiber and everything in between, including, of course, the importance of supplementing with a probiotic. And the one that I have come to trust far beyond the shenanigans of the supplement world is Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic. It's the most solid, science-based, and rigorously evidence-backed probiotic and prebiotic on the market. Formulated for optimal digestion, gut immune function, gut barrier integrity, skin health. In fact, my 16-year-old daughter has been using it to clear up a significant acne issue, and it's been wonderful, as well as many other systemic benefits. Like I said, I've been taking it daily, personally, for years. I love it. My body loves it. And right now, for our listener community, Seed is offering 25% off your first month of Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic. Visit seed.com slash richroll and use the code richroll25 to redeem this offer. That's seed.com slash richroll or code richroll25. Okay, the minimalists. So these guys, Ryan and Joshua, are the dynamic duo behind a slew of books, a very popular blog and podcast called, as you might suspect, The Minimalists, where they write and talk about living a meaningful life with less stuff. The entry point into these guys' world for most people, including me, was their 2016 hit Netflix documentary, Minimalism, which is a fantastic watch directed by Matt Diavella, who's gone on to become a good friend and a massive creator on YouTube. In any event, now the trio is back with a great new follow-up Netflix doc called Less Is Now. So this is a conversation about all things minimalism, of course, and how to live more deliberately. It's about creating more by consuming less. It's about prioritizing experience over accumulation. It's about growth, contentment, love, and it's about the deep personal satisfaction that comes with contributing beyond ourselves. This is all a long way of saying that minimalism isn't about martyrdom. Instead, it's about freedom. So here we go. This is me, Joshua Fields Milburn and Ryan Nicodemus. 
What's up, guys? What's up? This is a long time in the making. Yeah. It's good to have you here. Great to see both of you. Good to be jo- had. Joshua's hair is looking perfect as always. It's always. You know, <laughs> Joshua gets a lot of attention for his hair and this whole Christopher Walken thing, but not enough attention is paid to your hair. <laughs> you have excellent hair. hair I'm sort of in between you guys. I cut my hair. Oh. I had long hair like yours, but you're looking fabulous today. Thanks, as well. man. That, you know, I felt like I was having a bad hair day today. So that really uplifts my spirit. No, so thank it's you all very good, much, man. man. It's all good. Um, people who've been on this podcast journey for a while will likely remember a podcast that I did with Joshua way back in the day, but Ryan, this is your first yeah. time here. So I was I'm boycotting to, you at the time, but yeah, no. I don't know <laughs> what, what was going on between us, but we worked it out. Um, you guys have been gracious enough to host me on your show several times. And uh, I'm delighted to have you here on the eve of your new documentary coming out. Thank it's exciting, so man. Yeah. Thanks for having us. Yeah, yeah. it's cool. To be here too, man. Um, your story is well told, but I think it would be good to at least contextualize everything we're gonna talk about by sharing your personal stories. And also in particular, Ryan, since yours, you know, you haven't you haven't had an opportunity to share yours here. So yeah. how do we how do we launch into that? What's the best place to start? Should we start mm. at the beginning yeah. with you guys? 1981. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll Fifth grade, yeah. best friends. I, yeah, I think we should start Two with Two pudgy kids <laughs> sitting in the corner. Yeah, exactly. Plotting world domination. <laughs> that's, that's not far from the truth. Um, except the world domination part. It was more like- uh, you're, you're working your way towards it. The Dayton domination. Right. And, yeah, working our way towards it. How many kids from Dayton have documentaries on Netflix? I mean, the Wright brothers. Yeah. Brothers. Okay. <laughs> All right. So there's uh, that. Who's, who's the other? Fa- uh, Martin Sheen. He is from. I don't think he's a doc though. No, he, he might be. That. He might be in a documentary. Right. <laughs> here's here's where we start. I, I think. Um, uh, I'll tee it up. Uh, so Ryan and I grew up really poor in Dayton, Ohio. We've known each other, as you said, since we were fat little fifth graders, mm. and. Uh, literally, I was the fattest kid in school. Ryan was the second fattest. It's so kid hard to believe, school. but when I, you watch the documentary, you're like, "Wow, he was telling the truth." Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah I mean, yeah. it was uh, it was impressive or depressive. Mm. Um, anyway, we we knew each other. We grew up really poor, dysfunctional homes mm-hmm. before that term dysfunctional was in vogue, and. Um, we were pretty discontented growing up. And of course we thought, well, how do we get, how do we become happy? And of course that was make money. And so we climbed the corporate ladder throughout our twenties and, and had uh, ostensibly successful careers. Mm-hmm. But of course we weren't successful. We mm. were overwhelmed and stressed and, and, and sort of discontented by the lives we created. And you know, what's fascinating now, Ryan, is the, the life we were living growing up, it was so chaotic. Mm-hmm. But we traded that chaos just for a different type of chaos. Mm-hmm. Controlled chaos is still is still chaos, right? In fact, that's an oxymoron. Mm. And, and so, yeah, we were working in corporate America, making really good money, spending even better money. And so had massive amounts of debt and uh, knew we needed to make a change. Yeah. And, and well, yeah, I mean, you both grew up in alcoholic households, essentially, yeah, right? Yeah. Food stamps, poverty. Yeah. So it's not surprising that you would seek out security and you know an upward kind of financially secure trajectory. I mean, that's what you know most people would do trying to emerge out of a situation like that. Yeah, I just I remember working uh, for my dad just out of high school. Uh, he just had like a small painting and wallpaper company, and he worked his butt off and like he made nothing. Mm-hmm. And now I was there working my butt off making nothing. And I'm like, 
I know there's a way I can work just as hard, mm-hmm. but make more money. And uh, that's when I went into telecom with uh, with Josh. And yeah, like he said, we I started making really awesome money. And I thought, oh, I figured it out. I finally figured it out. I remember, because um, even during like high school, I worked for my dad painting right. and hanging wallpaper. And I remember uh, uh, early on when I was working for him, we were in this really nice house. It wasn't like a mansion or anything, but it was like something nicer than my mom or dad had ever owned. And I looked at my dad, I'm like, this is a really nice place, man. Like how much do I need to make in order to to live here? And he's like, if you can make $50,000 a year, you could probably afford a place like this. So for me, that was like, yeah, that was the number for happiness. It was Mm -hmm. 50 grand a year. And when I went to the telecom company, I I think that very first year I made like 52,000 or something. And um, I was really proud of myself and like happy that I was making more money. I went out and like, you know, bought a new truck, I guess, it wasn't technically mine because, like, you know, I got a loan. On right. The, you know, got a car payment basically. But um, I wasn't happy. And um, I realized why I wasn't happy. It was because uh, I didn't adjust for inflation. The 50,000 number had had grown a little bit. So I'm like, oh, maybe it's 60,000. Yeah. Maybe it's 80,000. Maybe it's six figures. Or maybe it's just owning a bunch of stuff. Um, so, yeah, that's what I pursued. But I mean, my story really with minimalism, it's, it kind of starts with Josh because when we were in the corporate world, we were miserable. We had accumulated so many different burdens, like whether, you know, whether it's debt or whether it's, you know, an overabundance of, of, of clutter, um, whether it was, a, you know, chasing a job title. I mean, that it was, it was, it was uh, very, very depressing. Right. But I noticed Josh who started being a little bit less depressed and, um, that's when I went to him and I asked him like, hey man, what are you doing? That's making you so happy. Why the hell are you so happy? Right. And that's when he introduced this thing called minimalism. Well, walk me life. up to the the point of this epiphany, Joshua, because I think there, you know, it's important to understand the inflection point that, you know, introduced you to this new way of living. Sure. Yeah. My my um my mom died, my marriage ended both in the same month. So it was like sort of this double car crash, right? It's like you get hit by one thing and then it swerves you into this other thing. And and at the same time, my corporate career, I was really discontented by it. I was managing 150 retail stores, which I know is ironic with the whole minimalism mm-hmm. thing now, but maybe it, it took that in a way for me to to recalibrate. But these two big events happened to me and, and I started questioning everything and literally everything, the things in my life, especially. Because I had spent the last dozen years, I was 30 at the time, and, and as I began questioning those things in my life, I realized like I had worked so hard to buy a bunch of things to make me happy, and those things aren't doing their job. And so they had become my priority though. Mm-hmm. And so of course my priorities were totally out of whack achievement, success. Now it's not that Ryan and I are against material possessions and we don't think it's morally wrong to own things, right? We own stuff. I got here in a car today. Yeah. I have a bed and a Wearing couch. a nice jacket. Yeah, thank you. Um, and, a lot of money spent on hair products. <laughs> <laughs> but the thing is, uh, I had such an attachment to the things, but also the perception of other people. And a lot of that had to do with ego mm-hmm. and and and, and, and so ultimately what I figured out at the time was, oh, my priorities are really out of whack. And thankfully I stumbled across minimalism. 
thanks to the internet at the time, someone uh, tweeted Colin Wright, a friend of ours, who was in our first uh, minimalism mm-hmm. documentary. And he lived with 52 items. And I, 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 I didn't aspire to, to that, but it made me realize there was a relatively normal person doing very abnormal things. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't, I didn't want to live his life, but that exposed me to a bunch of other minimalists, people like Leo Babalto, Courtney right. Carver, and Joshua Becker, more normal people who had like families and houses. And Right, Leo's got like five kids or something like that. Yeah, six. Six, yeah. right, yeah. yeah. He yeah. didn't even have condoms. Right. <laughs> he was so minimalist. <laughs> but what's, what's, what's interesting about this to me is you could have, given a different set of circumstances, like ended up at a Buddhist monastery or joining the Peace Corps. Like clearly you were mm. having an existential crisis about how you were living. Mm, like sure. you had premised your entire life on this idea that this very traditional upward corporate trajectory would deliver on its promise of making you happy. You, you know, achieve those things. You're lacking that, you know, sense of connection that you thought it would deliver and you go searching, right? And you stumble upon minimalism, but, uh, what if it had been some other thing? There are other paths to, you know, sort of finding a little bit more fulfillment and purpose. But um, you, for whatever reason, like minimalism was the thing that you connected with. Yeah. And by the way, I, I think that I connected with it because there wasn't a particular dogma among the people that I saw. There mm-hmm. wasn't like a a twelve step thing. And and, and you know, I, I look at a lot of the stuff Don't now. Don't you on, dare talk bad on the twelve step thing. No, Go ahead. no, 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 no. no I'm not I know, about I'm twelve kidding. steps. Uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> But like the the five steps to declutter uh-huh. your closet, right? Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. And, and and so like it wasn't it wasn't like the how to side of things wasn't that appealing to me. It was the why to side of things that really uh, made me scrutinize what I was doing. Even now, you won't see me and Ryan talk about the seventeen ways to declutter your kitchen. Mm-hmm. We're not going to do a video about that. Someone else wants to do that. That's fine. I don't think that actually addresses the problem. I think those types of solutions are all. They often cause new problems because we begin to focus on, uh, we turn those things you know, into into the main focus, and it removes our focus from whatever the the underlying problem is. And, and so, I, I was fascinated by what these people were doing and how they were doing it. But I was much more focused on the why. That's why the, the new film, mm-hmm. Less Is Now, it, it it really starts with that question. How might your life be better with less? Now that's a how question, but it's it's a disguised question. It's right. actually and a you, why question. You, you <laughs> see that in the the anecdotes and the stories of of the kind of everyday people that mm-hmm. have undergone this process and how it's emotionally changed their lives or their perspective on on how they live day to day. But it is true, and we've talked about this before, that on a surface level, it's about getting rid of your stuff, but it's really not about that at mm-hmm. all. And, and I think a lot of the focus or the kind of news narrative around it is, is around decluttering, but decluttering, the process of decluttering is really just a way to clear space so you can you know, marshal your awareness onto the things that are important that you wanna focus on. Yeah. Is that fair or accurate? Yeah, no, I think it, that is totally fair. It's interesting though, it makes me think how the media wants to sell a solution to a symptom rather than address the problem. I mean, I don't, that doesn't right. really speak to what you were talking, I mean, what you were asking, but. Well, the problem is so massive and we're all living, you know, amidst this grand delusion, you know, that we it's, it, our entire society is founded upon 
the idea that you know you played out in your own life and had to figure out for yourselves wasn't delivering on the promise, right? This right. idea that we should be seeking security and comfort and you know uh, salary increases in the new car and all the messages mm-hmm. that bombard us everywhere we turn our head reinforces that. Yeah. And yet what it doesn't do and the movie does a beautiful job of illustrating this is remind us about what's most important, which is you know community and the connection to the people that we love, and mm-hmm. and you know pursuing your life with some level of 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 intentionality. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, Annie Leonard talks about about this in the documentary about uh, deficit advertising. So you know, advertisers, big corporations, whatever, they they go out of their way to make you feel like you're missing something in your life. So that's why we chase the bigger paycheck so mm-hmm. we can go out and buy those things that subconsciously we're like, oh man, if I just had like a little bit of a nicer car, I'd have a better ride to work and right. I'd enjoy my commute a little bit more. And if I had just a little bit bigger of a house, I could have that Pilates studio. And I mean, yeah. You it's, just uh, notch it up and then you right. get there and then you're like, well, I don't feel that way yet, but it's because there's a guy who's living a little bit higher up on the hill than I am. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. By the way, I don't want to moralize any of this either. I don't want to say it's it's better or worse if, to own fewer possessions, right? Sure. Um, I, I'm not saying that it's good that Ryan and I own less than we used to own, right? I'm not saying it's bad either. Um, it is probably more appropriate for us mm. uh, given the, the constraints. But to the point you were, you were asking about, Rich, our material possessions are, are sort of this physical manifestation of what's going on inside us, right? That's that existen- existential mm-hmm. crisis you talked about. And so the external clutter is a way that we, we sort of visualize the mental clutter, the psychological clutter, the emotional clutter, the spiritual clutter, this internal clutter. And we found that like with minimalism, yeah, it, it could have been Buddhism or Christianity or, or anything mm-hmm. else that we would have stumbled into. Um, but stumbling into minimalism allowed us to deal with the, the thing that had become this priority in our lives, stuff had become this, this priority. And so it started with the stuff, but that's sort of the initial bite at the apple, right? right. And then it goes to simplifying all other areas of life. Right, but there's this moment that you experienced and that you see in the people profiled in the film where the lights kind of go on, like as they mm. begin this process, there's yeah. like an, 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 an enervating that occurs in their lives. Like they become very emotionally involved in the process of decluttering their lives. And it becomes like exciting and de- there's a momentum that kind of occurs. Yeah, yeah, you're talking about the, the like the everyday minimalists that right. we have in our, yeah, in, our, yeah. in our film, yeah. No, it is encouraging. There's one gentleman in there who talks about how once he started simplifying and got to where he, you know, felt like he wasn't living in a bunch of clutter, he kind of realized like, oh, like I've had everything I ever needed this whole time. Mm-hmm. And he gets emotional. Yeah. And he's an older guy. He's yeah. not like a millennial. Right. right. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. No, it's it's it, I love having those um kind of everyday minimalists in there to kind of talk about mm-hmm. their own personal experiences, especially because, you know, Josh and I, we can tell our stories all day long. Mm-hmm. But uh, you know, you need other people to resonate with than just, you know, two dudes with really great hair. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we, Rich, it we, is really great though. <laughs> we, we, we didn't want it to be the, the Josh and Ryan story, right? Like the first film, Minimalism, it was sort of exposing people to different ideas of intentional living and different areas of, of minimalism. There were minimalist architects in there, Buddhists, et cetera. Um, in, in this film, we didn't want it to just be, oh, Josh and Ryan tell their story but it, it sort of circled around 
that initial story of us, but we brought in some experts, but then we also had those 30 of those everyday minimalists. So we wanted all these different perspectives. Mm-hmm. I mean, you, you probably notice the diversity in the film, but it's not just like an ethnic diversity. It's like we have a 17 year old and a 70 year old in the film. And all we did was we put a call out and said, hey, does anyone have a story about how, they were, how they've been affected mm-hmm. by our, our first film and, and uh, they've simplified their lives? And how did that work out for you? And we just started bringing those people into the, right. into the film. Right. Yeah. So taking it back, you have this experience in the wake of your marriage dissolving and your, your, your mother's passing where you decide that you're gonna basically change your lifestyle top to bottom. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You get rid of all this stuff you have that lights going on experience. You seem lighter in your shoes. Were you, were you, I, I, I assume you're still at the job at that point, but you were just yeah. showing up with a, a little bit of a bigger smile. Yeah, I was also, <laughs> I was doing a better job setting expectations. Uh-huh. So we were on call like doctors, but I wasn't saving anyone. I couldn't even save myself. And, and, and yet I had to answer the phone at 10 p.m. if you know, my boss's boss wanted to know something about the sales transactions for any of the stores that day. So mm-hmm. it was a regular occurrence. So the last thing I did when my head hit the pillow was check my Blackberry. The first thing when I got up in the morning was check my Blackberry. And throughout the day, all throughout the day, I was checking. And I started setting expectations and, and that was sacrilegious where we worked. I, I, I called my boss, said, I'm not gonna take phone calls in the evening anymore. Mm-hmm. And I could audibly hear his jaw drop on the phone because what do you mean? That's not like you realize yeah. that he didn't realize that was an option. Yeah. Even for himself. I got I got a call from our boss. We had the same boss, and he was like, "Is Josh like is he depressed? Like maybe planning on killing himself or something?" <laughs> I'm giving away my stuff, right? Uh-huh. Giving away his stuff. He's right. like saying, "Hey, I don't care what you think. I can't, I'm not taking phone calls at six. Yeah. But isn't that isn't that kind of sad? Like that's the reaction, though. Yeah. <laughs> Instead yeah. of like, as yeah. opposed to like, wow, is he doing something to change his, his life mm-hmm. um, uh, so that he experiences more peace or more contentment? Yeah. Um, like I said, this I don't think this is an indictment on 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 stuff or even on corporate America. It's an indictment on chasing, on craving, on mm-hmm. attachment. Mm. Well, also on your relationship to externalities, mm. right? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So. Ryan, at some point you begin to cotton on to this, like what's going on with Joshua, right? Yeah, I mean, it was, it was after him setting boundaries. It was, uh, you know, after that phone call from our boss um, because I did not see a depressed Josh. I saw someone who was like taking control of something that he, that he had no control over. Mm-hmm. And uh, it wasn't until, so he moved into a new place after he split up with his wife and it was like a two bedroom, one bathroom, maybe two baths, but it, it, it was only half full. But the one thing that was missing that really stood out to me was the TV. And every time I'd go over, I'd be like, dude, when are you getting a TV? What kind of TV are you gonna get? Because that's how we like compared success in the corporate world. Like what kind of TV you got at your house? How many TVs do you have? How mm-hmm. big is that TV, right? I what Freud would say about <laughs> this. <laughs> so at a certain point, he's like, I don't think I'm gonna get a TV. I'm like, interesting. And uh, yeah, eventually I, I, um, I wanted whatever he was doing. Mm-hmm. And when he said minimalism, you know, I don't know, you asked that in the beginning about would it have been a different path? You know, could it have been a different path if we didn't find minimalism? Right, well, if he shaved his head and disappeared to a monastery <laughs> for a while and came back, maybe you wouldn't have been so. Yeah, probably not, yeah. <laughs> probably not. Yeah. So, but you know, he introduced the term minimalism to me and if, you know, to be honest, if it was someone else, I don't know how seriously I would have taken it, but uh, him and I have very 
it's weird. We have like exact opposite Myers-Briggs personalities, but we have very similar similar personalities in other ways. So I was like, if this works for him, I'll at least give it a shot and mm -hmm. look at it and see if it'll work for me. Um, so the first video he sent me was Colin Wright with the 50 things that he owned. And I'm like, oh, okay, like this is a little weird. But then like <laughs> I got into other minimalists, Courtney Carver, Leo Babalta, Joshua Becker. And all you know what I saw is common sense. I saw a lot of people talking about all these common sense things that I knew internally, but for some reason I never listened to. And minimalism for me, it was an opportunity for me to start over. Mm -hmm. It was an opportunity for me to, um, well do what Josh did and gain control of what I had lost control over. So I got really excited. I'm like, dude, I, I wanna be a minimalist. Like this is awesome. Like I, I get it. Um, what should I do? <laughs> right, right. So, so you uh, do this packing party thing. Right, basically. so yeah, exactly. So, uh, you know, in the excitement, he was like, well, what if we pack up all your stuff and then unpack it as you need it? And I'm like, that's a great idea, especially because I'm a very extreme person when it comes to things. Like Josh had pared down over several months. He made some very slow changes mm -hmm. over months time. But for me, like I, I needed faster results. So the packing party was perfect for me. I think probably most of your listeners right now, uh, I don't know if the packing party would be the best <laughs> option yeah. for, especially if they got families and stuff. Yeah. Although we have totally seen families do. Well, yeah, I'll say this. Well, like, everyone's at home thinking of interesting things to do, right? There's <laughs> right. a lot of people rearranging the furniture in their houses it's right really now, losing idea. their minds. Yeah, this the, is like the perfect time for them to confront all yeah. their stuff. The one time you're really confronted with everything, like truly confronted is when you move to a new house. Uh -huh. And so that, that was sort of the impetus of the packing party idea it was like, when you move, you actually have to go through everything mm -hmm. you own and do something with it, mm -hmm. whether it's store it, box it up, whatever, it doesn't matter, you have to do something with that stuff. And, and now is sort of the second time where this has happened, where people have been in their homes for way more than they anticipated. And we, we thought at the beginning, it's like people were like reaching out to us, like, hey, you guys, you're probably upset that you got rid of all that stuff, aren't you, oh, now yeah. that you're stuck at home? And I'm like, yeah, the broken waffle iron is really, I'm missing <laughs> that right now, right? Yeah. Like uh, oh, the, the third bread yeah. maker that I got right, as a yeah. wedding gift. And so anyway, uh, that packing party, we've had uh, dozens of people do. In fact, we, we have a book coming out next year called Love People Use Things. It's like mm -hmm. the, the, our, the whole sort of synopsis of our message. And in that book, we had 47 different families do a packing party. So mm. it may seem radical, but, it's not so radical that, I mean, we've had a lot of people do it. Yeah. yeah, the idea being you pack everything up and then you slowly unpack and deliberately decide which items you actually need yeah. to yeah. use well, and yeah. the rest gets donated or sold. Right, yeah, I mean, Josh had asked me, he's like, what if you unpack things as you needed it? Mm -hmm. Like that would really help. And I'm like, yeah, it's a great idea. That's that's what we should do. And so you can imagine, yeah, my clothes for work, bed and bed sheets, toothbrush, so mm -hmm. forth and so on. But I'll tell you, the packing party, it was something to like change my state, but I honestly didn't realize how powerful that was going to be until it was over and I was confronted with all my things. And uh, I, the biggest revelation was I had this dream of retiring early, but I had like very little retirement, you know, very little in my retirement accounts. Um, but here I saw tens of thousands of dollars hmm. that I wasn't using, you know, worth of stuff. And I'm like, hmm. I could probably be sitting in my retirement account right now. Yeah. But, I, but I remember going to Josh, I'm like, dude, this is, we, we have to do a website and talk about this packing party. Cause this is, 
this is something. So that was the original impetus to yeah. start the blog. Yep. Yeah. Wow. yeah, it started 10 years ago yesterday. Uh huh. I know. I saw on yeah. Instagram your 10 year. You bet. You guys have been doing this for 10 years. Ten wild, years. Man. Unbelievable, man. Yeah. yeah. How do you, uh, what's the difference between your relationship to minimalism then in the early days to now? Like, how has it evolved or changed? Mm. I think it's changed quite a bit recently. Um, I've become more allergic to the sort of how to side of things. I, I, I've never been a, a giant fan of it, uh, mm-hmm. but I, I've realized that it's actually, before I was somewhat neutral on it, it just wasn't for me, but now I think it's, 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 it's often a problem. And I think it, it's, it's an opiate in a way because it, it helps as Ryan alluded mm-hmm. to earlier, the sort of the symptoms. Like if I show you how to declutter your kitchen, but you don't know why you're doing it, it's gonna be recluttered yeah. a month from now. Mm-hmm. And so, Getting a deep understanding, if you understand the why, truly understand the why, the how takes care of itself. Mm-hmm. And so yeah. we'll talk about some of the how stuff that we've done. That may not be applicable for everyone, by the way. My, my why looks different from Ryan's why. And that's why mm-hmm. starting out with that question, how might your life be better with less is, is really the, the foundation of it. Then right. we can talk about the but how it's, too. But it's the process, it's the, it's the how that opens the portal to the why, right? Like mm. if you're living your life in a certain way with blinders on and just moving in a, in a particular direction, it's very hard to answer that question of why. Like you gotta shake things up and do something different in order to you know, con- kind of confront that, right? Like mm. short of you doing the packing party, would you have been, you know, if, if confronted with the why question, how are you gonna answer that? So. Mm. It's almost like yeah. there needs to be, you know, a, a, a deconstruction of your life a little bit, and there's yeah. some practicalities that get I'm, I'm baked into that. that. It's interesting, yeah. Uh, you know, it's it's almost like the why was so much in my face at the time mm-hmm. of how miserable I was. Mm-hmm. It was like. But also, you're holding on to it so hard because your whole oh, life was has been invested in that. Yeah. But I, if it wasn't for that uh, amount of, or that level of stress and discontent and depression, I don't know if I would have. Right. Because the problem is sometimes- Pain is the lever, yeah. the ultimate lever. Yeah, and comfort is like, I don't know. Comfort to me is, um, don't get me wrong. I like being comfortable, but- It's fuel for denial. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I, the thing I, I look at with what Ryan, I think Ryan's actually the perfect example of if you understand the why, the how takes care of itself. No one gave him a how to. Mm. There was not, not a prescription for a packing party ever. Like it, it didn't exist, right? What, what did exist were a bunch of decluttering tips and other things that we had seen for decades and never paid any attention to because that's not that compelling. It's compelling in the moment at the uh-huh. checkout line, uh, the same way candy is appealing at the checkout line, right? But it's not nutritious in, in any way. And so when Ryan truly understood the, the why, like, oh, I'm, I'm not, I don't feel at peace, I feel chaos. L- let, me, let me sort through this let me not fix it because nothing is fixed, right? There's always change, yeah. right? It's not about fixing something. It's about addressing the problem. And right. I think that's what the packing party did. It was the impetus. Now, mm. yeah, we, we talk about the how, but you can, Ryan and I always talk about how what we share is like a recipe and you can sort of tweeze mm. out your own ingredients mm-hmm. and create your own version of it, mm-hmm. adjust for taste. Yeah. Meditation has been a recurring theme on this podcast, dating back to its beginnings. And in conversation always leads people to asking me about the best way to begin. 
There are no shortage of modalities of resources and apps available. I have experience with many of them, but my mainstay, I have to say, the one that I have found most useful is waking up. It's this unique treasure trove of wisdom that has become so important to my daily routine that the app finds itself right in the dock of my phone for immediate fingertip access. Beyond its robust catalog of daily meditations, it's also this extraordinary library of mindfulness resources that go well beyond the strictures of meditation with courses on stoicism, cognitive behavioral therapy, time management, procrastination, as well as thoughtful conversations with leading scholars on everything from psychedelics to happiness. It really is one of the most worthy investments you can make in yourself. And listeners of the show can get 30 days to try waking up for free. Plus, you'll save $30 on the in-app price. If price is a concern, Waking Up offers the app for free, astonishingly for anyone who can't afford it. You can find the links on their website to get a full scholarship right now. Just go to wakingup.com slash richroll to start your free month today. That's wakingup.com slash richroll. We're brought to you today by recovery.com. I've been in recovery for a long time. It's not hyperbolic to say that I owe everything good in my life to sobriety. And it all began with treatment and experience that I had that quite literally saved my life. And in the many years since, I've in turn helped many suffering addicts and their loved ones find treatment. And with that, I know all too well just how confusing and how overwhelming and how challenging it can be to find the right place and the right level of care, especially because unfortunately, not all treatment resources adhere to ethical practices. It's a real problem, a problem I'm now happy and proud to share has been solved by the people at recovery.com who created an online support portal designed to guide, to support, and empower you to find the ideal level of care tailored to your personal needs. They've partnered with the best global behavioral health providers to cover the full spectrum of behavioral health disorders, including substance use disorders, depression, anxiety, eating disorders, gambling addictions, and more. Navigating their site is simple. Search by insurance coverage, location, treatment type, you name it. Plus, you can read reviews from former patients to help you decide. Whether you're a busy exec, a parent of a struggling teen, or battling addiction yourself, I feel you. I empathize with you. I really do. And they have treatment options for you. Life in recovery is wonderful, and recovery.com is your partner in starting that journey. When you or a loved one need help, go to recovery.com and take the first step towards recovery. To find the best treatment option for you or a loved one, again, go to recovery.com. What is the meaning of life? What happens when we die? What is our purpose here? If like me, you ponder these delicious existential questions, I have got just the thing for you. It's called Soul Boom. It's a podcast hosted by everyone's favorite best friend and my friend, the deep thinking and deeply hilarious Rain Wilson, where he communes with intellectuals and entertainers, theologians and philosophers in intimate exchanges that tickle the mind, heart, and yes, the soul. Subscribe to Soul Boom on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media.
So how long after this packing party and this decision to write about these things uh, before you guys are no longer working at the corporation, right? <laughs> like I know you got laid off. I got Ryan. laid off, yeah, months after. Josh, Josh technically got laid off too. I laid myself <laughs> off. <laughs> you did? Yeah. It was, uh, well, they came to me. So this was 10 years ago as well. They came to me right before Christmas and said, hey, as soon as we close, or as soon as we finish out the holiday shopping season, which by the way, we've turned the holiday season into a shopping season. Think about that for a moment. Um, but they said, as soon as we do this, you know, I need you to close eight stores, and lay off 42 employees. I'd done this a bunch of times. It's, it's, it was never fun, but it got mm -hmm. easier over time. So I, I laid off a bunch of people and fired people. It wasn't that big of a deal. But then with this new perspective, I had been simplifying my, my life that entire year. I, they said, you got two weeks to put together this plan. Give us the 42 names. Uh, that you're going to lay off. And so I went home and within two days, I, I was putting the spreadsheets together, but looking at the spreadsheet was like looking at a rainbow in black and white, in grayscale, right? Because these were just names and statistics. And I, I get that's how you're going to make a decision like this. Mm -hmm. But these weren't just names. These were husbands and fathers and daughters and mothers. And these were people. And you know, my livelihood was in their hands. And I knew that like there was some sort of discontent, but at that point I realized the corporation we were at no longer aligned with my personal values. And so I turned the, the plan in, my name was the first name on the list. You, so you, you really did lay yourself off. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. and um, I didn't really, I didn't have a plan. I just had reduced my bills so significantly, living in Dayton, Ohio, $500 a month apartment. And I was like, you know what? I'm gonna try this writing thing out mm -hmm. for a while. There's a coffee shop in my neighborhood. They actually end up in uh, right. the documentary press. press yeah. yeah. And uh, I said, I'm just gonna, I'll just work there and I'll have enough money to pay my bills and I'll write for uh, the, the rest of the time. I wanted to write fiction initially. You know, thanks to Ryan, this was a, a beautiful accident in a different direction. <laughs> right. So you guys start meeting at press, you start working on this blog. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Um, I mean, that's what we did for the first year. Right. We just wrote wrote on the blog and yeah, put our, put our thoughts out there. Was there a moment, like a tipping point moment with the blog where you're like, wow, like mm. this, this could be a thing. Like we could actually craft a vocation what around is the this. Tipping point? I think for, for me, it's the San Francisco event. Uh, it was, for me, it was before that. It was before that, okay. Yeah, for me, it was um, Leo Babalta shared something that we did and um, I, was, I was reading his blog back then too. I mean, right. he had a, he, you know, that was like, everyone was reading his stuff. Mm. And we had like more people show up in one day. It wasn't a lot of people. Mm. It was like 9,000 oh. people or something. For me, it was like, oh, we haven't seen. So you know, we talk about this in the film, how like 52 readers that first month turned into 500, which mm -hmm. turned into, you know, 5 million or whatever. And, and so there, there was a moment there Around that same time, it was like, "Hey, you guys are the minimalists, aren't you? Did you write a book about minimalism?" Mm -hmm. And it's like, "Oh, I guess we should do that, huh? <laughs> we are the minimalists, yeah." <laughs> and and so we did. We we put out a book. Uh, we at the time we we just self published a book at the end of our first year, and yeah. we went on on tour. But it was really just we went around the country to coffee shops yeah. and and brought. And it made me realize, like, oh, if we can get eight people to show up yeah. and buy most a book, stop, most stops were like, yeah, two two to eight people. Yeah, if we you sell can, if we if we sell ten, when books, you're living minimally, you don't need much, right? right. Oh, we well, exactly. Feed yourselves. <laughs> yeah, if we yeah. can sell ten books. Yeah. Then we have a place to stay for the night. If uh -huh. not, then we just sleep in Ryan's Toyota Corolla. Right. 
and that's how it worked out for us. Yeah. And, well, the the first movie did such a great job at you know spinning that yarn of you mm. guys going on the road and you know showing up at places and three people would show up and then slowly a few more, a few more, and you see the build, uh, but. You know, it's the grittiness of the early days that, you know, yeah. was so fun. I'm just thinking about see. that South by event in that minimalism documentary. Cause I remember being so excited for that South by Southwest event. Uh-huh. Like we made it. <laughs> right. We finally, we finally. It's, it's like, like a, it's a buddy movie road trip <laughs> on, you know, like, like a Wizard of Oz movie with South by Southwest right. being you guys going to meet Oz. And I was mm-hmm. thinking this was like, you know, the apex of our journey, like we were at South by Southwest. This is, and then like, yeah, three people showed up to our, <laughs> to our talk. And they're like I on know. their phones. <laughs> yeah. By the way, it's so 8 a.m. on a Sunday morning. Oh Ryan's goodness. trying to talk about living with less. <laughs> well, hi everybody. Yeah, that was great. Uh, lanyards. This big room with like three people in it. Well, that movie's yeah. so well done. And I, I have to imagine that that had to be, you know, life-changing in some regard. I think mm. it's most people's introduction to your work because yeah. Netflix put it right out front and so many people watched it. Um, the first question I have about that first movie is how did you connect with Matt Diavella? Cause Matt Diavella, he's had his own like crazy yeah. trajectory blowing up on YouTube and being this massive creator on that platform. 100%. Yeah. He, he, uh, he's all grown up. We connected with him on- <laughs> <I know. laughs> Twitter when he was a wedding videographer. Yeah. Uh-huh. And um, I saw this video he made called Most Wedding Videographers Suck. And I still <laughs> I still uh, bring that up to him constantly. Yeah. Um, but he was doing that and he was doing like other like commercial work for like right. know, Toyota or Subaru or something. And, and I, we hired him to do the trailer for our second book, um, Everything That Remains. Mm. And we did an event out in New York to you know, sort of celebrate this. And he filmed that event and made a, a trailer for for that book that we put up on YouTube. Mm-hmm. And that was sort of it. And then a few months later, I said, hey, we're getting ready to go on the road. We, we, 2014, we did a hundred city tour, right? And said, hey, do you wanna come on the road with us and try to make a documentary? And he had been wanting to do something with his creative skills other than commercial work, mm-hmm. right? And so he's like, yeah, I'll give it a shot. At the end of the tour, it was like, he just had a few, hard drives with like a thousand hours of footage. Right. Yeah. It was like, hey, good luck with that. And then <laughs> So he just out. went away and came back with a cut yeah. for you guys? Yeah. I remember yeah. dropping him off at the airport and I just remember thinking to myself like, I don't think this is a movie. Yeah. <laughs> like I have no idea how he's gonna pull this together. Uh-huh. But there was no budget for it. I mean, we were just, you know, we were just mm-hmm. passionate about it. So it's not like we had a lot to lose. Um, but then he sent that first cut and um, yeah, I was instantly like, oh, wow. Like Matt knows what he's doing. And I always make sure and tell people that because people will come up to me and they'll be like, oh, you're, you're the guy from the minimalism documentary. Great doc, you did such a good job. And I'm mm. like, I wish I could say it was me, <laughs> but right. it's really Matt Diavella who did that old documentary. He did an unbelievable job. Yeah. And all the accolades and success that he's he's enjoying on YouTube are, are well-deserved. Oh yeah, what he yeah. does is amazing on, yeah. on YouTube. And and he has built up this this, Amazing following, especially of young people, right? Who who really he's brought the message of minimalism to a crowd that that maybe we Ryan and I weren't ever going to reach yeah, either. So, right. Yeah. He he does such a he makes these like mini documentaries. I know every of, one of his his videos is like should enjoy a theatrical release. All right. right. Yeah. That's a, <laughs> that's a they're, awesome. They're, I hope he gets that. Com- I'm going to tell him my comment. Yeah. And he's a guy who who. Um, walks the talk, like he just this past week 
gave away all his stuff yet again. Yeah, and yeah. him and his wife are on the road and mm-hmm. now in Sydney, like they're just gonna travel. They literally, everything yeah. they own is in like little carry on suitcases. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a beautiful example of how you can turn your life around on a dime when you have the power to let go of anything in your mm-hmm. life. Mm-hmm. And that, I mean, that's exactly what he displayed with that. It was, cause it's not about, minimalism is not about owning nothing. It's just about breaking free from that attachment, breaking free from that, um, I don't know, that, that, I don't know another word for it, just that well, attraction. It's your, that it's your, there's a sense that, oh, if you're gonna be a minimalist, a minimalist that you're uh, self-flagellating or you're some kind right. of martyr, when in yeah. truth, you're just purchasing freedom for yourself. Absolutely, mm. absolutely. And choices, yeah. right? To be able to, you know, Self-employment is such a gift, but it gives him with the things that he does, the ability to just, you know, pack it up and mm-hmm. go wherever he wants, mm-hmm. Yeah, which is unbelievable. Yeah. yeah, and when you see him work, it's amazing. You wouldn't think he, he's able to, he has the strangest sort of, he's like hiding under the table, looking up with the camera. Uh-huh. Like, you're like, I don't, what is he doing? Is, he, is that a crotch shot? I'm not sure what's going on here, but somehow, he, he just, he has- And a total one man show. When I did his, yeah. po- I was one of the early guests on his podcast and he's got all these cameras and, and he's got, a, he's doing it all himself. Like mm-hmm. he's manning the cameras, he's asking the questions, he's got the monitor there. I'm like, this looks stressful. Yeah. <laughs> like yeah. get a little help, but he's like, no, he knows what, he he's, knows doing. what he's doing. He's like a master of his domain. Well, and and yeah. his hidden secret is his skill at editing. So we had, um, well, we had some some help on this film. Um, Angus Wall and his Tiana Angus Wall. Uh-huh. But he uh, he's David Fincher's editor, so oh, he edited wow. like Fight Club. Um, he edited The Social Network. Mm-hmm. He won some you know Academy Award for that. He edited what's the one with um, what's the other big one he did um, uh, with? Um, I know it's on the tip, uh, it's on the tip of my tongue too. Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. Oh, wow. He did the opening sequence to that. Anyway, his company did the animation and, and less is now. And um, he was actually, we were gonna bring him and that team on to edit the film. Mm. And, but Matt was just like, no, I'm good. Like, I, mean, it, I got it covered. Yeah, and that's the thing. Like, he, The weird thing about it is I don't think Matt likes editing at all. Mm. Uh, but that is his hidden, like he's the, he's the Mozart of editing. Mm. And yeah. he, even like when we went from like, fourth cut to fifth cut, Angus saw it and he was like, this looks like I went through 60 different cuts of right. the film. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So it, yeah, kudos to him. Yeah. So the movie explodes um, and you guys kind of ride this wave. You have, you, you have the books and you started the podcast. You're now 10 years into this thing. You've got millions of people all over the world that care deeply about the things that you talk about. And what's really cool and compelling about this platform that you now um, manage is that it's completely audience supported. Like you mm. start all your podcasts, and, you know, advertisements suck, and <laughs> and you have this population of people that adore you and basically, you know, are are willing to subscribe to your wisdom, mm. and you've been able to craft out living, making a living off of this mm. for a decade. Most of what yeah. we do is is free and, and available to the public, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's you know a small portion where we sort of dive deeper. And you know, our private podcast is is on Patreon, and yeah, we do have an audience that supports us there. But that's also it's it's almost like when you go to well, back when we could go to the comedy store, places like that, where people sort of work out ideas, right? We work out things, and, and sometimes Ryan and I just argue on the private podcast about things because 
we don't agree about something or we bring a guest on and we, we argue with them about it. And I like to think of it as talking things out. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh-huh. uh, and, and so, um, but most of what we do is, you know, whether it's the blog or, mm-hmm. or, or the, the main podcast, you know, it, any, it's, ac- it's accessible to anyone. Right. When you were touring, how many cities did you do? I mean, you get, you guys invited me to come when you did the Fillmore in San Francisco, which was like so cool, man. Oh, yeah. You guys were filling theaters like all across the country. Oh yeah, yeah, you're at the Fillmore Super with fun. us. Yeah, that was great. Yeah, I mean, the most we've ever yeah. done was 100 cities, 119 events in one year. Um, wow. We canceled a, a tour la- uh, this year, 2020, mm-hmm. right? Um, because of mm-hmm. 2020 for obvious <laughs> reasons. And um, yeah, I mean, we've done what, nine tours in 10 years. So yeah. so anywhere from a few cities, like the Simply Southern tour was three cities, we went with, with Dave Ramsey's team and did a small tour in the South to a hundred cities everywhere in between. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, it just became a part of, and by the way, all those tours were different as well. Sometimes it's a podcast tour. Sometimes we do a, a talk. Sometimes we'll um, do book readings and book signings. Right. It kind of just depends on what's going on. Yeah. So Dave Ramsey features pretty prominently in the new movie. So how did yeah. that relationship develop? How does he fit into the the yeah. minimalist ecosystem? His daughter really likes us. <laughs> is that so, what it is? Yeah. yeah. Okay. His daughter works for him. She's a very talented mm-hmm. author. Her name's Rachel Cruz and she has a great YouTube show and she invited us to come on her YouTube show. It's in Nashville. Um, and it's a whole production. They have a whole uh, studio set up there. I mean, he has a thousand employees at his compound. It's wow. a really impressive setup. Um, and they, I mean, they work really hard to, you know, to teach financial literacy. They're now mm-hmm. being taught in 25% of the hi- high schools around the country, the Dave Ramsey curriculum. He has a whole team, like hundred like right. people on that team. His and, whole thing is about living fiscally responsible. Yeah, right? yeah. Like not living outside of your means and yeah. making sure that you're making prudent financial, de- like essentially like conservative prudent financial decisions. Yeah, I feel like he's like a, a minimalist finance guy basically. Uh-huh. Cause you know, minimalism, it's funny when I first, uh, you know, heard it and uh, heard about it and looked into it. I kind of thought like it was this niche type thing. And then like, once I got into it, I'm like, oh, like this is a, this can be applied to anything. And I think Dave Ramsey <laughs> essentially mm-hmm. applies minimalism to finances and right. And yeah, yeah. Right. He's got some great financial. His whole advice. team though, they're, yeah. they're great. Anthony O'Neill, mm-hmm. Chris Hogan. Yeah. Yeah. The, the whole, the whole lot of them, John Deloney. Yeah. Ken. So we're, we're, you know, well into this, pandemic cycle, uh, <laughs> fraying the at the edges cycle, yeah. as we crawl towards 2021. Oh my um, and I'm interested in how you're thinking about the relationship between consumerism and minimalism with this very specific moment. Mm. The way that I'm kind of thinking about it is that on the one hand, like nobody's going to the mall, they're not shopping, they're at home. So it's forcing people to perhaps be a little bit more reflective about mm those habits on some level, yet at the same time, we're all empowered by these tools and we're spending you know, these technological tools, we're all, we're all in front of our screens way too much. Yeah. And that habituation to shopping has just migrated to the devices. Mm. I don't know what the statistics are, but I suspect I'm certain that online shopping has skyrocketed, yeah. but has yeah. consumerism overall increased during this moment? Like, how are you thinking about people's 
habits? What does that look like? It right depends now? what we mean by consumerism. Mm -hmm. So I do think consumerism is the right way to, to, to frame it. That is one of the problems, right? Consumption isn't the problem. We talk about this in lessons now it, because we all need to consume some stuff. Consumerism which is what we could just identify as compulsory consumption in uh -huh. a way, as though we feel that as though we must buy this in order to either be complete. Ryan talked about the deficit deficit advertising earlier, mm -hmm. um, or the what what else does Annie call it in the film? The the vertical in integration. Of, mm. Yeah, and, and so it, and no longer are you just competing with your next door neighbor. It's your your. Yeah, talk about that. That's a really fascinating, important idea, I think. So here's the new problem. If consumerism is one problem, we, when we relate that to stuff, materialism is really that. The other side of consumerism is, is distraction, I think. And so the thing that Ryan and I will say is scrolling is the new smoking. And, and this epiphany hit me when I you know, was walking outside of like a Chipotle or something. I see someone outside in the cold, like in the Midwest, scrolling on their phone, cigarette in hand at the same time. And it's not to judge that person, it's to see myself in that person. Like mm -hmm. I, don't, I don't smoke, but like I could see, you know, my habits are showing, right? And it's not just the smoking. Now, 50 years ago, everyone sort of casually puffed cigarettes. We, we'd be at this table right mm -hmm. now, just smoking right. and talking, right? Be a cloud. Or, right. <laughs> and, and, but you did that now, it would seem nutty. If I just mm -hmm. lit up a cigarette right now, you <laughs> yeah. wouldn't know how to respond to that. Right. I, the only person who could do that is Dave Chappelle, by the way. Mm. Um, <laughs> but besides him, like it would seem nutty. And, and, and yet, it doesn't seem that strange if I, it would because of the three of us, but at your average setting, if I were to pull out a phone and just check it really quick, mm -hmm. but it's just as bothersome in many ways, you know, it's mm -hmm. secondhand distraction. Right. Mm -hmm. and, and so I think over the last decade in particular, what we've seen is a lot of new ways to distract ourselves. Ryan and I distracted ourselves back in the oddies and in, in the late nineties with, with stuff but now the distractions are digital and they're right there and they're more enticing than ever. Mm. And the, the same thing happens, right? It, in the material world, it was high paid demographers, statisticians, marketers, aggregating your eyeballs onto their product or service. Now, you, since you're the product, it's aggregating your eyeballs onto the product and service to sell you products and services. Mm -hmm. mm. And, and so it, in a weird way, a dystopian way, it, it elevates the problem, it, it amplifies the problem. Right, I mean, mm -hmm. without, without a doubt, and this is subject matter and terrain that movies like The Social Dilemma go into yeah. at length, it's not just enticing, it's, it's truly addictive and it's designed to be that way. The revelatory idea that I had not thought about before until I saw your movie was this idea of the kind of exponential expansion of keeping up with the Joneses, right? Mm, like this, right. this consumerist impulse originally derived from, you know, perhaps something genetic within us to try to, you know, keep pace with our neighbors. Mm -hmm. So-and-so's got that refrigerator or that car, like I've got to get that too. But now by dint of these technological tools, everybody's our neighbor. So mm -hmm. it's not yeah. just the person living next door, but it's you know the celebrity on Instagram, and you get to peek into their world. Or now on Zoom, you get to see you know what everybody's you know study and living room looks like, yeah. and it's almost impossible to not run that comparison against what you have or don't have. Yeah. And how does that impact your your consumer choices or your sense of innate discontent when you attempt to measure yourself against that impossible standard? I, yeah, I think comparison is the killer of joy, <laughs> regardless of, you know, kind of how you're comparing yourself or what you have to other people. 
it is interesting, like with the whole social media, it's like, you know, my sister, uh, when I was in, uh, in Ohio a year ago, you know, back when we were traveling without any fear. Yeah. <laughs> uh, she was like, do you feel cool? Cause you got, you know, X amount of subscribers on Instagram. And I'm like, no, I was like, do, do you think I'm cool? Because I have that many subscribers. Uh-huh. And she's like, yeah, I think it's pretty cool. And I'm like, if you're looking at subscribers, like I have, I don't, I don't even know what I have. I know it's not a million, but I'm like, you know, if, if you got to where, you, where I'm at with however many subscribers, th- th- then you'd be looking at a million. And then once you had a million, you'd, you'd be mm. looking at three million. It's like a never ending comparison wheel that uh, we put ourselves on. Right. It's failure. Yeah. It's in a weird way, all success is failure. So what are the tactics that you deploy to prevent yourself from you know, indulging in that kind of you know, mm. fruitless mental exercise, because it's hard, right? It, yeah, it is, it is. I mean, I don't look at specific numbers, like that's one way, because uh, I think I'm a numbers guy in general. I love math, I love spreadsheets. So <laughs> I could very easily get wrapped up into it just to like make a game out of it. But uh-huh. I try to not gamify it as much as possible. But right. I'll be honest, like because of, man, this is gonna sound like some you know Buddhist hybrid thing, but because of how, destructive my ego was in the corporate world. I, anytime I start to feel uh, the ego kicking in, which it kicks in all the time, but when I f- start to feel it kicking in with like, oh, how many subscribers did I gain today or how many, cause I did feel that in the early days. I, I try not to um, stroke that ego. And by practicing that over the last 10 years, I am able to just, you know, kind of still feel like I felt mm. 10 years ago. I don't feel any mm-hmm. more popular or successful. I mean, even it's funny you were talking about, you know, us um, having a lot of people who adore us, I think is what you said. And like, they're willing to support us. And I appreciate those people so much, but like hearing you say it, like my ego was like, oh, wow, that is amazing. We do have all these yeah. people who adore us and who will support us. But uh, but yeah, um, so, you know, I guess just to reiterate, like when my ego starts to get out of control, I will try to like put it in check a little bit because ultimately when I, I know if I ever start to play that game, it'll never be enough. Mm. Yeah. yeah, I don't have any tactics. I, I You guys aren't getting into Twitter spats and things like that. Like you you no. seem to just, I can tell by the way that you, you know, share your content online that it's kind of at an arm's length. Like you put it, you make sure that your stuff is being shared, but yeah. you're not, um, you know, in there, you know, Going back and forth with people and right. stuff like that—a healthy detachment. Yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm not. I'm not. You know, mm, the Buddha, yeah. right? Like right. the Buddha would be non-attachment, right? But, but not needing to be, <clears throat> not needing the outcome, and, mm-hmm. and and not needing any of it. By the way, the the, the by being attached, detached, you realize that that. This is going to sound like a value judgment, but it's not. It's all a scam, man. It really like it. Who cares? Like it, it's all ego. Even by the way, I, I, what have I changed my mind about recently? Helping people. I don't want to help people. Let's be honest. Like helping people. That's just my ego saying I want to help people. Uh-huh. Now I feel it still viscerally because I've I've programmed you will myself. Will be externally validated if you say that out yeah. loud. Right, mm. right. It's it's my no 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 no. But maybe mm. maybe the truth behind that is well I I want to I want peace. I want to speak the truth. And if that helps some people, that's wonderful. If it doesn't, it can still be wonderful. I don't need that. 
because if once I become attached to needing to help someone, mm -hmm. it's a different type of prison. It's a well-decorated prison cell, but it's still a prison cell. You can yeah. you can help people for selfish reasons though too, because it makes you feel good. It actually makes you it gives your life a little bit more meaning and and oh, yeah. it it builds self esteem. So even if your impetus your impulse is is selfish, it's still a good thing to follow through on. Yeah. Yeah. And by the yeah. way, I, I'm not saying that helping people is good or bad, right? It's 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 not a a and also not helping people is not good or bad by, by default then, right? Um, I, I don't wanna throw that, that judgment out there. I'm simply saying that like, I have to be honest with myself that like, it's my ego that's involved where, I, where yeah. I'm like, it, it's what Ryan said, you know, if I have 10 million Instagram followers, I'm helping more people. Well, where, is, the, is that the truth mm -hmm. or is that just a statistic? Mm. Mm. I feel like there's two interesting things, things happening right now, which is, the undeniable uh, rise of popularity around minimalism and related ideas. Like there is a groundswell of people who are feeling disconnected and dissatisfied in a way and are discovering this way of living that is giving their lives greater meaning and purpose. But in tandem with that, we're also seeing this acceleration of our materialistic consumer culture. I mean, you you see it in the film too, the kind of uh, rapidization of, of home delivery and Amazon and the drones and mm. you know how everything is just seems like it's on steroids right now, almost like this war of ideas that are that are like bumping up against each other. Yeah. Mm. Well you also see the sort of corporatization of simplicity as well, right? When Marie Kondo right. is selling it can be things at the container and, store. And yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, the container store is actually one of the biggest problems, right? The container store allows us to hide our hoards. And this is an indictment on Marie Kondo. I think she really does get to the why in, in her book, mm -hmm. The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up. Like she does talk, she obviously discusses the how-to stuff. That's her her shtick, but she, she gets to the why. But but when I see, you know, tuning forks for several hundred dollars and, and uh, crystals and... and the commodification of simplicity. Like you don't need anything to simplify, right? Mm -hmm. that, that, organizing is just well-planned hoarding. And, and the thing we talk about in the film is the average American household has 300,000 items in right. it, right? Now, I had a really organized version of that. I had basements with a basement full of bins and boxes and ordinal alphabetized system of CDs and DVDs, and but it was just well-planned hoarding. The, Easiest way to organize your stuff is to get rid of anything that's no longer adding value. Right. Get rid of most of it. It's so much easier to quote unquote organize because you don't have anything that you have to organize. You're getting to the essence and you're stopped worrying about the form. Mm. Yeah. I love that quote that you shared recently. Uh, Everything is 100% off if you don't buy it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think we shared that maybe on Black Friday or something. Yeah. yeah. Man, I wish yeah. I could have told my 25 year old self that. Mm. Oh, man. He may have not been ready for it, though. <laughs> no, you said something about, uh, real briefly, about minimalism bringing meaning to people's lives. And actually, I don't know if minimalism brings meaning to people's lives. I think it's minimalism helps someone etch a, etch a sketch, a new life, it helps them start over. And then from there, they can start to do meaningful things. Um, and that's, I mean, that's really what Less Is Now is about. It's about, you know, mm -hmm. being able to start over, but it's, uh, I've never, yeah. Thanks for however you phrase it, made me think of it mm -hmm. in a way of, I don't think minimalism is. By getting it wrong. Right, yeah. I mean, I was alluding to that, but yeah, I, I hear what you're saying. <laughs> yeah. No, that's a, that's, a, that's a very good point. Mm -hmm. um, the question I was gonna ask was, 
what would you tell yourself, you know, five years ago when you were well into this the minimalism thing that you understand better now that maybe you didn't then as you kind of mature? Mm. 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 Five years ago, drop the drop the prescriptions. Yeah. Like not the actual like medical prescriptions, but like oh, you mean like, that, that back to the how-to thing? Yeah, but yeah, but also like like I, I the the desire to give advice to people that's also an ego thing, mm. right? I have no more advice. I have some observations. If you want to hear my own observations about my own life, but even then, going back and giving advice to my thirty-five-year-old self would be almost counterintuitive. Now, if I could show him some things, it would it'd be the piece that's related to letting go of, of some of the attachments. Mm-hmm. Because I think Ryan and I, we you picked up new attachments along the way, especially when that, that film came out. Um, talk about serving your ego when you get recognized on the street a dozen times a day. All of a sudden, you start to believe that you're better than, than what mm-hmm. you are. And Ryan and I, for a period of time, I think we went three years without doing any media as a result. Like I was just like, I, I, it doesn't feel good to need this. Mm. And, and because it doesn't, it feels like you're creating for the wrong reason. It, it's, it, it feels as though like it, it's that externality you talked right. about. Well, that's a healthy dose of, of self-awareness. Maybe, I mean, yeah, I, I'm still, I'm still, yeah. Uh, Working on eradicating that, yeah. right? Yeah. Aren't we all? If you ever figure it out, let me know. Mm. <laughs> well, that's the thing. I don't think we so, ever figure it out. I think it's it, it is the eradication thing, right? It, it's yeah. you don't uh, figure out heart disease. You you try to eradicate it mm. in a way. Yeah. Hmm. So the first movie came out in 2016. What year was that? Yeah. 15? We so Netflix yeah. actually turned us down twice on that that film. Mm. We uh, so we put it out on our own. We we did a theatrical release um, through a company called Gather at the time. I don't even know if they're still around, but it was like theatrical on demand. Was that 2016? Yeah, yeah that was okay. uh, May, 2016. Wow. And, and um, we did 400 theaters, US, Canada, Australia. And then from there we put out on our, uh, we, we went back to Netflix, they said no again. Um, and and so we just put out on our own and it did relatively well. It resonated with people on iTunes and Amazon and other places. And so Netflix ended up saying yes to it. And that really started the, the conflagration because we sent the rest of our audience there who had been listening to the podcast or reading the blog and they, you know, whatever sparked, whatever algorithm right. does and, and it showed up on a lot more people's mm. radar. I think that's how we showed up on your radar even. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I saw, well, I think you were doing a few podcasts. So I saw you guys popping up on mm. some friends and mm. people that I knew. Uh, and then I saw the movie. Um, I was very struck by the movie. And then we did one of our retreats in Italy and we screened it for the group uh, that we had there, which was really cool. cool. I was just remembering that today. Oh, that's awesome. Um, and I can't remember whether I did that. I think I had interviewed you and then we went on the trip or maybe I interviewed you right back, right afterwards. I can't remember, but you know, I just I just remember being very moved by that film. And then we did the podcast and I, I I believe that you might've even alluded either on mic or off, 
you guys were working on another documentary. Yeah. Like mm, it, there was gonna we be were. a follow-up, right? And here we are five, maybe almost six years yeah. later yeah. before Less Is Now premiere. Mm. So what was going, what happened? <laughs> yeah, yeah, we ran into some technical difficulties. Yeah. <laughs> well, Ryan and I, you know, shortly after that came out, we went to Matt again and we we did another tour. Uh, the less, it was called the Less Is Now tour. Mm, mm-hmm. And uh, we went out filming that, trying to sort of recreate the magic of the first film. And we put it together. We we actually we uh, did an event at the Wilbur Theater. This is where Joe Rogan shot his like most recent comedy special. Mm, beautiful spot. Yeah, we 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 filmed it. Uh, we gave a talk there, and we were going to like sort of build the film around that talk. And we kind of end up doing that in this this later version of the film. And the talk looked fine, but it kind of looked like a stand-up comedy special without comedy. You, you were like waiting for the punch because it was the venue, right? It was, mm-hmm. it, it, and, and so it just, it fell flat, it didn't work. And so we did it again. We actually brought you out. We rented out this giant warehouse right. space. Right, that was like two years ago. Yeah, Matt was three, there, yeah, there was almost, tons of, yeah. was, it, was it that almost long three, ago? Yeah, it was, almost three, yeah. Yeah, yeah, was, yeah uh, and this was the big shoot, you had a live audience. Right. I mean, that warehouse space is in the movie. Did you, was that from that evening or no, did you guys end up reshooting no, that, that? was from a year and a half later. A year and a half right. later, we went to the wow. same studio. <laughs> yeah, cause yeah. I was like, I was telling Julie, we were watching, I was like, yeah, I was there that night when these guys were doing this, but I'm like, it doesn't look like there's people there. <laughs> like when I was there, there was a lot of people there. So something was weird. Yeah, something yeah. was different about it's, it. Yeah, so it went from a comedy special to no comedy to a really well done TEDx talk uh-huh. is, is what yeah. that, that's what it looked like, yeah, right? right? And so, so that night you were there. You you actually came up. You're gracious enough to do the the intro for us, and we gave a talk in front of two different crowds because we figured, well, the Wilbur Theater aesthetic was the problem, and so mm. we'll refilm this in front of yeah uh, a beautiful aesthetic. This old abandoned warehouse. We'll build the set for it. Bring a crew out. Film it. And it'll per, it'll work out that way. We that's that's the problem. Well then, so we get there, and then we start interspersing it with these documentary elements. Uh-huh. And it was like mixing um, vegan cheesecake. <laughs> Shout out to Rich Roll. <laughs> and and <clears throat> sweet and sour tofu, <laughs> and just smushing them two together. <laughs> and you're like, I really like both of these things. Uh-huh. <laughs> But they don't work when I smush them together. And so we had to go back to the drawing board and um, we said, hey, we're just gonna scrap. So that was the second time we did the film. We scrapped the whole thing mm. and, and started over again. Mm-hmm. And so this project we thought was gonna take us about four months, ended up taking about four years from the inception right. until- Because when, when I was there that night, my sense was that you guys were in the final throes of wrapping this thing up. Oh, we were. Right, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> of that version. <laughs> yeah. And those two will never see the light of day. It's not that they, uh-huh. they were, were terrible. It just didn't, it didn't work for what we were trying to communicate. And we right. wanted to, we knew it wasn't, it wasn't, we, we, weren't, we weren't really putting our best foot forward. Uh-huh. As Ryan said, it was either like a, it was like a, it would have been a really good YouTube video. Yeah, it would have been a great YouTube video. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I was just gonna say like, just to add on to when we got those two films back, I just remember not getting the feeling that I got with minimalism. Mm-hmm. Matt, for what we gave Matt, he did an amazing job for what we gave mm-hmm. him. Um, but yeah, it was, uh, it's been a long road. You are listening to this podcast because you care about improving your health and your well-being. But 
this quest is incomplete if you have yet to add my friend Dr. Rangan Chatterjee's Feel Better, Live More podcast into your listening quiver. An RRP favorite and someone I'm personally quick to call when I'm in need of good advice. From nutrition to mindset, fitness, and relationships, each episode is packed with the tools you need to become the architect of your health. Subscribe to Feel Better, Live More, available wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. There are certain rare people who have a powerful voice and know how to use it. My friend Amanda Decadene is one such human. The podcast is called The Conversation because it is the conversation a groundbreaking series of raw and honest exchanges on the issues that matter most. Mental health, sex, politics, ambition, gender roles, and more. Listen to The Conversation wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. There is so much health information out there. It can feel overwhelming and leave even the most well-intentioned confused about what's what and who to trust. Well, the first person that I call when I'm seeking clarity is my friend and nutrition expert, Simon Hill, host of the fantastic podcast, The Proof. Each week, Simon matches wits with brilliant scientists, translating their evidence-based insights into actionable tools for better well-being. Subscribe to The Proof, available wherever you get your podcasts, and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. Well, it's tough, too, because the first one had a built-in narrative, and you guys are these underdogs, and you're going on this trip, right? Yeah. So there's yeah. there's a, a kind of a tempo or a propulsion to that. Mm -hmm. And in the follow-up, it's in, then the challenge is like, well, how do we, you know, what's the next chapter of this, and how do we make that compelling? And yeah. mm -hmm. I think know, that chapter ended up being the chapter before. Like it was in a mm -hmm. weird way, it's the first ever documentary prequel. Right, right. Uh, it doesn't require you to yeah. see the first film, obviously. No, yeah, not at all. But, yeah. but, and they're two independent things. And this one, we were really aggressive about keeping it under an hour in mm -hmm. the whole spirit of, of yeah. minimalism. And, but in doing that, we had to cut out a lot of, a lot of amazing. That Ryan oh, had this yeah. whole sub narrative oh, about man. his. We can talk about it here because you haven't yeah, really talked sure. about it publicly. The no, whole drug I, thing. I was like you, Rich. I love the party. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, this was this is something that I I know about you, but mm -hmm. I've never heard you actually talk about. Like you've you've had yeah. your run in with drugs and alcohol for sure. I do. I talk about it whenever it comes up. Like I'm totally okay to talk, especially coming from Ohio, because like I hope someone in Ohio who is hooked on you know pain pills right now is listening to this and knowing that they can totally pull their, themselves out of that situation. Cause I mean, Dayton, Ohio, where we're from, mm -hmm. uh, I don't know if it still is, but it was the the overdose capital of the world. So uh, there's a lot of, um, just a lot of drugs there. Uh, but yeah, the, the, to Josh's point, there was this beautiful arc in the film that we couldn't put in there um, that I really tried to get, and Matt tried to put it, it just didn't work, but it was about um, kind of going down that road and what pain that caused me and how I was able to, you know, kind of start over. But it's really, it's those stories, again, unfortunately I couldn't make the film, but it, I think it's those stories that really mean the most to people. Like they want to hear about like, oh, Ryan isn't this perfect 
person who was just like one day like, oh, I'm going to simplify my life. And I mean, mm-hmm. it was a lot of work and it was a lot of pain and it was a lot of discomfort. And uh, um, I, I did get through it. But yeah, I was um, living in the, is it an opiate? Is that what pain pills are? Or are they? They're opiates. Many of them are. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, opiates were real easy access. And when you're when I was working 60, 70, sometimes 80 hours a week, I would caffeinate myself. I didn't do a lot of coke, mainly mm-hmm. because my my mom like turned me off to that drug because I saw her go through her own thing. And I talk about that yeah. in the first documentary. Yeah. Um, but uh, I would caffeinate myself, uh, Adderall, you know, whatever productivity thing I could get in my body. But then you get home at nine o'clock right. at night and you, it's hard to unwind, but it's really easy with like a pain pill and a yeah. beer. And yeah, so I got So it wasn't going out to the bars and getting loaded. It was yeah, more, some of that more like, I want to be, yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> right, okay, <laughs> good, it, it, I feel better. The, unfortunately, we even did recreation scenes, of Ryan getting beat up at a bar once. Oh, yeah. uh, that didn't make the film. <laughs> We're, we're actually going to find a way to put a lot of this mm. on on Patreon or somewhere. Where, um, mm. I actually just got a permission from Netflix today to use some of these these uh, scenes mm. um, somewhere. And, and you know, Ryan you know, talked about it in the film, but like, was spending upwards of five thousand dollars a month. Oh God, on yeah. wow! I op- remember telling it on opioids. I'm like, I might have a problem. It, I was yeah. talking to my therapist about it, and I remember mentioning that to to, to them, and she was like, eh. she's like, I've seen worse. I've seen people spending ten, fifteen thousand dollars a month on drugs. Time like, for a new therapist. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> She's like, you're not that bad. Wow. I think she was just trying to like make me not feel so yeah. bad. But so did you just go cold turkey and oh, no, put it I in went, the rear view? Or how did you how did you I went get past through it? I, I probably should have done a twelve step program, but um I just went off I went off of opiates to get on uh there's a product called like uh Suboxin, yeah. And um, you don't really, yeah, it's, it's, it's not like methadone. Like methadone is something that you just go from illegal addictions to legal right. addictions where Suboxone works a little bit different in the brain. So I was on that program for a little bit, seeing, getting a lot of therapy. And um, I remember one time I like was going on a trip and I had forgot to bring my Suboxone mm-hmm. and I went like two weeks without it. And I was like, oh, I'm free. Like, I'm done. I don't have to do this mm. anymore. <laughs> and you just never went back. Never went back. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, man. Good it, for you, man. Yeah. It's it was a long road. Like it's I wouldn't wish that experience on my worst enemy. Uh, the detox from opioids is horrible. It's miserable. I still don't think I've recovered 100. percent like, like mentally, you mean like brain like function wise, or sleep wise? Hmm. I think. Yeah, your deep sleep's still way off. Right? Yeah. Yeah. I'm like you, got, you guys like are both rocking the aura ring. Yeah. 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 So, so yeah, uh, it, it was a long road, but um, when I started living intentionally and like really facing these things head on, uh, that wasn't like the magic answer, but it certainly gave me yeah. some leverage. Right. Yeah. Well, you know, alluding to something that I asked you about earlier, I mean, both of you guys survived quite a bit of childhood trauma. Mm. Um, do you like, are you in therapy? Like, how have you like worked through, you seem to have a pretty, healthy relationship with your past now. Like you're, mm-hmm. you don't, it doesn't feel like you're holding on to a lot of resentment and those kinds of no. you know, negative patterns. So mm-hmm. how did you work through that? I yeah. think trauma is perspectival in many ways, right? Like um, I talk about this in the film so we, we can, my very first memory as a child is my father extinguishing a cigarette on my mom's chest. 
Now, of course, I'm yes, going to remember like something like horrible. that. Right, but I, I also don't think it traumatized me the same way that other things trauma. So, like, it's weird. Like, I do remember that, and I'm sure it was awful or whatever. Um, but there are other things that seem less consequential but traumatized me even more. I was much more worried of, like, Child Protective Services taking me away because mm -hmm. my mom was an alcoholic. Mm -hmm. I, I think I was far more traumatized by that. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I, I, I mean, I... I certainly have a lot of forms of, of sort of OCD, like low, I've been diagnosed with OCD, but it's like low level. I'm not like painting my floor mm. every day or anything like that. Mm -hmm. But like, um, I'm sure that's a, a whole thing about control, right? You know, right. Because of the chaos of, of childhood. It's almost uh, like you have this bar of like, well, I'm not painting my floor. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. But, it's, yeah. Uh, I mean, I, but you can have, just like anything, you can have an unhealthy relationship to a good thing. I'm sure that you could course. have an unhealthy relationship to minimalism where it is, mm -hmm. I am absolutely in control of my environment all the time. Yeah. The solution becomes the problem, right? right? Mm. And, and that's, that's why the whole anti-prescription thing for me now is like, yeah, I've been doing a lot more exploration this year around, around that. But when we are looking for we don't actually need the solutions. If your chair is on fire right now, Rich, you're not gonna say, hey, can you hand me that fire safety manual over there? Because it would really help me mm -hmm. out right now. You don't need three steps to get out of a flaming chair. You're going to do it, you're gonna do it like that because your why is so powerful, You don't. the how takes care of itself, right? And, and so the problem is not a lack of instructions. The problem is that your butt is on fire. Right. And, and so I, I think that, that too often we, any, any answer I give you here will sort of be like a narrative overlay with, with respect to the trauma or whatever, but I think it does have to do with detachment ultimately. Uh -huh. uh, and, and maybe there's a healthy detachment and an unhealthy detachment, I don't know. Mm -hmm. um, but but a, a healthy detachment from, yeah, I, don't, I, don't, I don't cling to that mm -hmm. anymore. Mm. I'm so glad you asked this question about like our childhoods because I did hold on to a lot of resentment for my mother and father. Mm. And it was mainly because I felt <clears throat> kind of gypped of like, why would they do those things? You know, like, why didn't they, like, they're the parents, I'm the child. They should be able to know what to do. And, yeah. you know, any normal parent would put their child first. And I had all these, you know, narratives um, and all these questions and through therapy, um, I was, and I got to this recently within the last few years. I mean, I've always tried to have a good relationship with my parents um, with that resentment, but I was able to like let a lot of it go when uh, it was a couple of years ago, seeing a therapist here in LA and uh, he just kind of helped me get to this point of when things really started to like hit the fan, my parents were probably 30, mm -hmm. maybe 30 to, right. You know, like they weren't, they're younger yeah. than I am now. Yeah. And that's a trip when you realize that. Right. Mm. Yeah, it is. It was. And I was like, wait a minute, here I am with this narrative of like, they should have known what to do. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, I'm 37 years old. I have no idea what the hell I'm doing. And like, for me to put that pressure on them is, it wasn't fair. I didn't see it as fair. And I, fi I finally looked at them. I'm like, oh, like, because, you know, I'd love to sit here rich and be like, oh, I've got a perfect life, become a minimalist and you're gonna live a perfect life. But mm -hmm. I still struggle with a lot of things. And uh, I've got my own battles that I'm fighting. And my, my parents, I finally was able to see like, oh, 
they've got their own shit going on. They've got their own battles that they're fighting and they're still fighting him to this day. And I'm really glad I don't have those battles. However, understanding that like, you know, I'm 39 years old. I'm for all intents and purposes, just as confused as they were at 32 years old. Yeah. And seeing that in them really helped me drop those, you know, poor me, why me, why didn't they, they should have. It really helped me drop a lot of that. Right, right, right. And and that those behaviors aren't necessarily a referendum on on how much they loved you or didn't love you, mm, right? Absolutely. But just their own personal limiters. God, I mean, when I think like about when I was 30, I was a disaster. Yeah, yeah, yeah. so. Yeah, me both. Yeah, I definitely yeah, felt um, like it at the time though, growing up, you know, like, if you loved me, you'd stop drinking sort of thing, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, and and yeah, I mean, I think it, Ryan and I grew up in similar sort of situations. I would argue his situation was far worse than mine in many no respects. Um, <laughs> let's, let's battle right now. And the SWAT team never raided my home. Oh yeah, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> it's All right, you got me. It's heavy. Uh, but, but, um, oh, what I'll say is that like Ryan saw the partying growing up as a fun thing. He saw his mom in particular having fun mm. with drugs and alcohol. I saw my mother being depressed with drugs mm. and alcohol. I've never had a drink in my life because I, I, I saw the sort right. of terminus of this thing, right? Where, where Ryan saw what he thought was the, the terminus, the, yeah. the excitement, the joy, the pleasure. It wasn't right. real joy. It was, it was yeah. confusing joy with pleasure. Yeah, mom's house was like the party house. I, remember, yeah. I mean, people would just pop in random. We had a pool and like fenced in backyard. Uh -huh. like, it was an above ground pool. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Uh, yeah but and, good times. Right, exactly. But I mean, that's all you needed and a bunch of drugs and alcohol. And right, yeah, everyone's having a good time. So it's fascinating to me that you guys have been friends, best friends since fifth grade. You've, yeah. you've now, you're now in 10 years of, of doing this thing together. So you're in business together. Mm -hmm. um, I've never seen you guys argue or act short with each other. You must have your moments. I mean, come on, right? But I mean, how have you, how do you take care of this the relationship? Exposed. Yeah, like, how do, I mean, what are they, what, you know, how do you make sure that you guys are, are, are good with each other, right? Yeah, I it's think, gotta be challenging at times. I think Josh is the most tolerant person I know. So he's just able to put up with all my yeah, crap. That's what it is. <laughs> that's what it is. I, it, it has nothing to do with me. It's a joke. <laughs> we have this. We have we have an acronym that we we often talk about. Shout out to Patrick Roan who spurred the conversation. That we had the conversation with us that spurred this acronym. Mm. It's Tara T A R A. But if you, if I really want to understand someone, truly understand them, it's that's the sort of the, the process that that I go through of, of tolerating the person first. It's a weak virtue mm -hmm. and it's not gonna get you very far. Tolerance, right? There's a, what is on the I-10, whenever we're driving and Ella's like acting crazy in the car, uh, there's a sign that says Museum of Tolerance. And I always joke with oh, Ella that, yeah, the Robert's that, that our car is the Museum <laughs> of Tolerance whenever she's in, in the car. Um, <laughs> the mobile <laughs> tolerance. Anyway. anyway, tolerate, and and then we go from there. You know, we we take these these steps. Getting tolerance is a good first step, uh, and then we move on to to acceptance, um, respect, and then ultimately appreciation. And Ryan and I have radically different beliefs. I'm trying to let go of those beliefs. I don't think beliefs serve us very well, but uh, that's a different conversation. Um, we have the same values though. And because we have the same 
values. When we have different beliefs to get, you know, so we get there via different paths, so, so to speak. Mm-hmm. We have different opinions. We have different personalities. We certainly have different preferences. But I don't say, well, his or preferences are right or wrong. I might think it at first, but like th- that's also my ego right. talking. Mm. And I don't want to just tolerate his preferences. That's not going to make for a good friendship, a good business relationship. It, by the way, it doesn't ever feel like a business. I mean, I don't think we had business paperwork. It's about four years into the thing. I know. Um, yeah, even now we don't have, like, it's not, uh-huh. yeah, it's just, it, it, it's not something we, we think about that way. It, it, yeah, it's a business we employ some people, but um, we go beyond tolerance. We uh, accept the fact that we're both gonna be different. I'm not trying to change you. Mm. It's not about, um, here's what you must do, right? Mm. And, and and then of course the respect thing, of course I, I respect your preferences. I don't always completely understand them, but that's okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, and ultimately, if you can get to that level where you actually appreciate the idiosyncrasies, then that's like full sort of detachment, mm-hmm. not mm-hmm. needing to change someone. Yeah, no, I think, and this goes for any relationship, like when, first off, if Josh comes to me with something, it's not accusatory. It's like it's something he wants to talk about. And when you approach a situation like that, you know, you can interpret it a lot differently than like, mm-hmm. oh, Josh is trying to shame me. Like, I never feel like he's trying to shame me. And I think that is where arguments come in. Mm-hmm. When people start to try and shame other people and that's, oh, you just shame me, now I'm gonna shame you. And now we're gonna trade shames back and forth. Right. Where um, <laughs> I try to be the Zen Buddhist that Josh is when it comes to uh, confrontation. But sometimes I'll go to Josh with something and he'll be like, I know you don't mean to say it that way. <laughs> I think what you're trying to say is this. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, you're absolutely right. Right. And uh, it's so, so it's not, when I say it's Josh, it truly is like he, when he comes to me, it's absolutely non-confrontational. And if I go to him and I'm like accidentally being confrontational, he's able to like process it and be like, yeah, yeah. I know Ryan's not being a jerk right now. Uh huh. So yeah, let's get to the root of what That's some ninja shit though. It's, it really, it's really, it's hard to master that and have yeah. that kind of, you know, presence of mind to yeah. It's really inspiring. Like, I mean, for me and my wife, like I really, go out of my way to try and have that approach with her. Again, I'm not perfect, but yeah. uh, I do better. Yeah. Every day I get a little better, I think. I used to be competitive, but that's like saying I used to be mentally ill. <laughs> um, I, I was doing a sauna in Montana when we lived in Montana for five years as a uh, accident. Um, <laughs> and uh, a beautiful accident. Some nice photos from that though. Yes, came yeah, out of that. It, it all, Dude, we did it for the photos, yeah. did it for the gram. Um, <laughs> did not do it for the gram. <laughs> I don't think we even had Instagram. Um, but anyway, uh, it, I was in a sauna with um, an American Indian named Tom and he, he, he said, he said you know, I don't, and there's like a basketball court right next to the sauna, it's the YMCA in Missoula. And, um, he, he and they're swimming and all this other stuff. And he goes, you know, I, I don't understand you Americans. Like you have this, this uh, idea of like, if in order for you to win, you have to lose. He's like, but where I come from, if you win, he wins. And if he loses, you lose. <laughs> and I, of course, my first knee jerk reaction to that was like, ah, that's a silly way to think about life. 
because <laughs> I'm winning, right? And it's like, well, no. You just haven't won enough. That's your problem. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, but even think about that. We, we talk about like... Uh, winning, you know, obviously Charlie Sheen is sort of the 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 parodic right. exaggeration of that, right? But that's that's it's not far off from how our where our culture is, right? We talk about winning as though it's a good thing, but by default, if someone wins, someone else has to lose. Now maybe mm-hmm. it's a semantic thing, and we can change our language around it. Mm-hmm. But I think language is really important. I think it's a real big problem too. But I think our language, yeah, it. It canvases our days, right? Yeah. It, it's language is responsible for more misery than anything else in human history. Mm. Well, that idea—I mean, the 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 most successful people I know, maybe not all of them, but I know a lot of successful people who do approach the world with that idea of largesse. That you know, it's not a zero-sum game, and if I win, you win too, mm-hmm. and. And not only you know are you able to you know basically succeed in whatever it is that you're trying to do, those people tend to be much happier people and grounded and and you know more conscious in general. You had the Tom's yeah. guy on recently, Blake. Yeah, right? Blake. He he strikes me as he's he's as definitely that. someone like that. I also had Karamo from Queer Eye on, and he was talking about the audition process for Queer Eye, mm. and. And they were like, you know, they they spent like years trying to find like the five dudes or whatever, or the four dudes that that do the show. Mm-hmm. And most of the guys were super competitive, and they'd go in an audition, and then they come out, and and the other guys would be like, "What did they ask you?" What? And they'd be like, "They wouldn't say," you mm-hmm. know, because they're like, "I'm competing against you. I'm not going to tell you mm-hmm. any secrets." Um, but there were a couple of them that would come out and be like, "Here's what happened. Here's what you need to look out for." And those were the guys that ultimately all ended up getting chosen wow. oh, for the show, incredible. which obviously changed their lives and the lives of you know a lot of people that watch that show. Interesting. Which is cool, right? That like I cool. love that idea. Yeah, makes yeah. me think of like Google when they hire people, they like bring them on a bus, mm-hmm. and then like whether or not they thank the bus driver is like a huge. <laughs> it's like a litmus like, test. Yeah. Oh, I see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. Like, what? How do you behave when when no one's watching? Because yeah. in this in this context, they're were casting people who are paying attention to this behavior, sure, and yeah. it's like we want people that you know approach the world with that kind of you know arms outstretched perspective of mm. of gratitude and giving. Amen. And to reward that. Yeah. We we were talking about Dave Ramsey earlier, but he his team, they interview the spouse in one of the interviews. It's a ra- rather rigorous process, but your spouse gets interviewed as well, um, I, like separately. Wow. And I, it's fascinating to me because I, I think maybe they're like trying to figure out, well, what are your, uh, how do you handle conflict? How do you make decisions? Mm-hmm. Uh, what? Wh- how do you make some of your biggest life choices? Are they congruent with the person that we want? To, to hire. Mm-hmm. Um, now I can imagine that might be a train wreck for some people, but yeah, um, I know if you if you interviewed Bex, like I would totally get the job, no matter what the job was. <laughs> <laughs> How do you know what she's gonna say? <laughs> you think you know? Um, let's talk a little bit more about about the movie. I mean. It, you know, I was I came into this thinking these guys have been working on this thing for years because I know how long ago it was when I was there at that mm-hmm. event. Um, but you are featuring these individuals, um, the kind of everyday people, minimalist 
people that are highlighted in the movie yeah. um, and they're on Zoom calls. So I was like, well, clearly you're executing this project like during the pandemic. The pandemic was the best yeah. and worst thing that happened to this mm, film. Yeah. Yeah. So we, we, um, we had this entire day set up in Los Angeles. We had a whole crew booked. We had location and we were bringing, I don't know what it was, 22 or 32 people in to be interviewed that day. The majority of them were these everyday minimalists, mm -hmm. right? In fact, I think it was a two day shoot. Mm -hmm. uh, early or mid March, of course, you know what happened. <sighs> yeah. Right at the beginning, the yes. starting line of the whole thing. Yeah, but the original thing that we wanted to, to do was, um, have you seen YouTube reaction videos and people sort of react to a, a music video or they react to a, a product or service or something? I might've seen one or two yeah. of those. <laughs> so like we kind of wanted to do that, but uh -huh. with minimalism in a way. Like, and so it was Chris's idea. Chris is uh, our director of photography on the film. And so that actually worked out better by, by bringing us sort of into their homes in a way. In mm -hmm. fact, we had them do some B-roll of some of their houses that shows up in the film as well. So you get to see the sort of decluttering process right. they went through. Some of them even had footage that they took when they simplified their life uh, you know, a year or two ago. And we got to include all of that in the film, even though we filmed the rest of it. And yeah, well, it gives it, it gives it, in addition to this verite touch, like it's it's heartwarming because it's so authentic. You know, mm. it's like they're actually shooting it themselves and yeah. sharing it, as opposed to a sterilized film crew coming in and trying to make everything look just so. Right. Yeah. We sent them cameras and stuff, so it looked mm -hmm. like uh, um, congruent with with e each one. Didn't feel like it was out of place, but yeah, it yeah. was them doing the thing on their own. Yeah. We got most of the cameras back. Just kidding, we'll get them all back. <laughs> More stuff, know, right? Right. Talk to me about some of the other uh, experts that you have featured in here, because it's, it's an interesting um, mm. grouping of people. You, in addition to Dave Ramsey, you've got TK Coleman, who I know, you know, he was on your podcast not that long ago, Annie Leonard from Greenpeace, Danae Barahona mm -hmm. from Simple Families. Yeah. Um, so she's kind of in, you know, squarely in the minimalist space, it feels like, but mm -hmm. it was intriguing, like, oh, this person from Greenpeace, like she's about sustainability. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, I, you know, I was interested in the, how you made these choices. She, she was the, she did the story of stuff, if you recall. She, she's the lady oh. who did that, that video. I mean, it's been oh, yeah, seen yeah. probably a million times at this point. Oh, story it's weird because I saw her and I was like, she looks really familiar and I yeah. couldn't point, she, there's an actress that looks kind of like her as okay. well, but I couldn't mm. put my finger on it. Yeah, mm. yeah. So she's an executive director of Greenpeace uh, USA. And yeah, so we wanted sort of, uh, there are five, we only wanted five experts in the film and we wanted sort of them from these different perspectives. So one was the environmental side of things. There's obviously overlap with all of, all of them. Uh, we wanted the economic side of things. So TK Coleman, he is uh, uh, an education director at Fee. Um, we had Dave Ramsey, the sort of the money side of things, the debt, especially how it's tied to consumerism. Danae Barahona, um, she is she runs an organization called Simple Families mm -hmm. and really focused on on parenting and kids and. And so we wanted to bring the family side in there as well. And then we had Erwin, Erwin McManus, who is a pastor here in right. Los Angeles, who probably was, it's hard to pick a favorite, but he had some of my favorite lines in the entire film. Yeah. He's an interesting dude. Cause wasn't he like a fashion designer or something like yes. that? He has, he has this whole other, he's like a designer. He does mm -hmm. all this other stuff. Yeah, yeah he, he, and he still does. He just launched a new like super minimalist clothing line. Mm. Um, and, 
uh, he's he talks about intentional living in ways that um, they're just really profound. And, and I was just really grateful to have that opportunity to sit with him. He's been on our podcast a couple of times too. TK mm-hmm. has been on our podcast. Uh-huh. I think you're the, you, you're, you've been on there the second most. TK has uh-huh. been on there maybe like oh, cool. eight times. <laughs> um, I, if, in fact, if I can introduce you to anyone, TK, he'll blow your socks off. Oh, cool. The best person yeah. you could speak to about just about anything, but especially like But I'm economics. unclear on his, like, so he's in education, but I'm unclear about the nexus between that and minimalism. He, so so he's, he was sort of our, our economy expert in a way. Uh-huh. And um, he, I wanted to juxtapose, you could call him a capitalist, although that word doesn't really mean what you would, you know, it's taken on a pejorative frame in the last, you know, five, 10 years. Uh, but I wanted to juxtapose Annie, who um, has probably radically different beliefs from TK and show that they overlapped and literally overlapped in the film together. And even though they disagreed about some things where she talks about growth and infinite growth, and then he immediately sort of rebuts that by, by talking about, I don't think the problem is growth. And, and he goes into what he, he thinks the problem is. Mm-hmm. And so we wanted some opinions that, we didn't want it to be like the, the yes man show, right? I wanted to learn something from these people. And Erwin, uh, he really helps solidify the theme of the film. You know, it's a film, as Ryan said earlier, about starting over. He has a line in there about the shaking the etch-a-sketch thing that Ryan talked mm-hmm. about. But that, the, we should all, we all have the, opp- not should, there's no should. Uh, we all have the opportunity. I like how you caught yourself there. <laughs> I'm, I, here's, the, here's, here's the most problem I have is like, I keep setting these things down like the shoulds and then, but I have the pattern, I pick them back up repeatedly. Uh, we all have the opportunity though, to, to restart our lives, mm-hmm. to start over. And this film was about starting over with less. Mm. And that can be less stuff, but it can also be less distractions, fewer commitments, et cetera. I love that. Yeah. What is the the, main idea that you want people to take away from the film? Mm. I mean, I think Josh said it, it's about starting over. I mean, it, <clears throat> is this film for every single person? I think some every single person will get something out of it. But I think who it's going to help the most is someone who's in a situation right now and they need some emotional leverage to start over. I think this film will help them do mm-hmm. that. Just I'm, the nudge they need. Yeah. I think that, I think some people I don't think the film is for everyone, as Ryan just said, but it's for anyone who's sort of dissatisfied by the status quo, Mm -hmm. whatever status quo they've created for themselves. We're overburdened, right? And a lot of that has to do with stuff. But I think it also has to do with toxic relationships. I think it has to do with debt. There are all these burdens. We've taken them on. We've picked up all this baggage but we can also set it down. It might take some time to set it down, especially with debt, you know. I, in the first film, I, uh, in minimalism, I talked about like I had almost half a million dollars worth of debt. Mm-hmm. You know, I was making two hundred grand a year in Dayton, Ohio, but I was spending like two hundred and twenty grand a year, right. like whatever they would let me spend. <laughs> and so I had massive uh-huh. amounts of debt as as a result. And I, I, I had to sort of set that burden down. It took some time, but you know, the 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 best way to to do that is to stop spending, mm-hmm. right? To, to stop whatever excess is going on. Mm-hmm. We, we can't add our way to contentment, to joy, to peace. It's always about subtraction. Mm-hmm. The timing is very interesting because we're all at home. And I think with that, 
comes a natural inclination to do a little bit of inventory, you know, on how we're living our lives and what is our relationship to our job, to our profession. When you're not going into an office every day or into a workplace in the manner in which you're accustomed to, that interruption of the flow or the routine, I think is triggering a lot of people to be more reflective about how they're spending their time and their mm. resources, et cetera. Um, so to the point about like the nudge or the, you know, the, the kind of uh, the, the gentle, you know, push towards these ideas, I feel like people are, are primed for this now. And it is a moment of, of radical change. You know, yes. I, everybody's like, or not everybody, but you know, a lot of people are thinking about this in terms of when are we gonna get back to the way it was? Mm-mm. It's not going back to the way it was. No. We are forever altered. Yeah. Some things will normalize to a certain extent, but the idea that everyone's gonna migrate back into office buildings, I think is lunacy. Like that's not gonna happen. We've now figured out how to pursue livings from Zoom and these tools that we have. So what does that look like down the line? And how can we reflect on this to, to you know, reform our relationship with the outside world so that it can be healthier and it can be more fulfilling and more purposeful. And the movie, you know, really, speaks to that in a profound way. And I think it's gonna help a lot of people. Thank you. Yeah, Yeah, thanks. Normal wasn't working for a lot of us. And this gave us the opportunity to realize that. There was a forced pause for many of us, even for me and Ryan, you know, we, we had a whole tour plan this year and, and, and we, the film was gonna come out earlier, et cetera. Um, and we had, you know, a bunch of speaking things that we were gonna do all, all you know, there right. aren't corporations yeah. that are meeting, so we couldn't go speak at, at, at these places. And, um, and so it was a pause for us as well, but it's not to take away either what is, what some people are faced with. My brother, you know, he, he is back in Ohio. He works in a factory, he worked in a factory mm-hmm. uh, building cabinets. It was a well-paying job and he was uh, talented and skilled uh, and, and he was doing that. That whole thing shut down, it's not coming back. He went and got part-time job at Amazon just so he could pay, you know, feed his, his daughters. And, and now he's working third shift at a meat packing plant because that's like his only reality right now. That's how he, and talk about one of the most difficult jobs you could have mm-hmm. um, and, and doing it third shift, no less. But uh, so a lot of people are affected by this. And so, well, I don't want to go back to where we were I, I also don't want to see more more suffering, and and so. I think what's happening right now is, Ryan and I for the last decade have been asking this question: What is essential? And now a lot more people are all of a sudden asking. In fact, right. the, the term's even out there: essential worker, right? Mm. Um, but what is essential in my home? What is essential in my life? What is essential on my calendar? What is essential? And that's why I hope to illuminate with with this film, mm-hmm. how people ask that question, what is essential? Mm. Yeah, I think that's a good place to put a pin in it for now <laughs> until you guys come back next time. Rich, I love you, brother. Yeah. Thank yeah. you so much. I love awesome. you guys too. I have so much love for you guys as people and respect for this mission that you've shouldered for the world. You guys are great servants to humanity and it's a privilege to talk to you. So thank you. Right back at you, brother. Wind in your sails, my friends. <laughs> thank you, brother. Thank cool. you so Thanks much. Um, before we sign off, where's the best place for people to learn more about you guys? Where would you like them to connect? In addition to obviously um, 
checking out uh, Less Is More on on Netflix, and also if you didn't see it the first time around, Minimalism, the original movie. Well, Ryan has an OnlyFans he just started. <laughs> <laughs> that that I am here. So, I am so here for that. <laughs> you said you wouldn't say a word about that <laughs> on Rich's podcast. <laughs> Audience supported. <laughs> That's right. So many people adore me. Yeah. <laughs> Talk about minimalism. All right, all right. All right. Uh, <laughs> no, just theminimalists.com. You can find our podcast, books, films, everything else. It, it's Thanks, all in man. one hub, theminimalists.com. Nice. Cool. Thanks, you guys. Thank, Thank you. you. Peace. See you. Plants. Thanks for listening. Hope you enjoyed the show. To learn more about today's guest, including links and resources related to everything discussed today, you can visit the episode page at richroll.com. And you can also find me on Instagram and Twitter at richroll. If you'd like to support the podcast, the easiest and most impactful thing you can do is to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. Sharing the show or your favorite episode with friends or on social media is of course awesome and always appreciated. And finally, for podcast updates, special offers on books, the meal planner and other subjects, subscribe to our newsletter, which you can find on the footer of any page at richroll.com. Today's show was produced and engineered by Jason Camiolo. The video edition of the podcast was created by Blake Curtis, portraits by Ali Rogers and Davey Greenberg, graphic elements courtesy of Jessica Miranda, copywriting by Georgia Whaley. And of course, our theme music was created by Tyler Pyatt, Trapper Pyatt, and Harry Mathis. Appreciate the love, love the support. See you back here soon. Peace, plants, namaste.